but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in if that's okay. I want to leave as much room at the end for us to be able to respond and worship um, to what the Lord is doing and saying this morning. You know, the, I, the, maybe the big idea, if there, if there is one for my talk, you know, I'm always supposed to have one, uh, and sometimes I do good that sometimes. I, if there is one for this morning, I would hope that we would come away with this reality that when God's enemies are in victory, God laughs. When, when God's enemies are in victory, God laughs that the way that his enemies actually perceive victory is not victory, is not victory. And God actually always uses the victory of enemies and oppressors toward his own ends, toward his own good. I just think it's shocking in the first couple lines. I mean, I don't know if any of you talked about it or if any of you sat on it for a little while, but it's actually very uncomfortable. The very beginning of verse 2 says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Did anybody sit on that for a minute? The Lord delivered the king and the people of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And everything that happened afterwards seems really, really messed up. And it says the Lord delivered into his hands. What a nice, comfy, warm, snuggly line to start Daniel. <laughs> it's, it's, it's disjoining. It's like, what do we do with that? What do, you, what do you do with that? What do we do with that? And I think the, the, it, it, it stirs all kinds of questions, and those are the questions I want to wrestle with this morning. But it, it, even though it's complicated, even though those first few words of verse 2 uh, have within them all kinds of theological questions, all kinds of cosmic questions, all kinds of uh, uh, difficult questions. What it still says, what it does say, is that God is still in it. God is not gone. He wasn't surprised. God is still with them in it. And that God is, I love this, this, this very simple terminology, that God is quietly sovereign in the middle of it, in all things. That God was not surprised by this conquer, this exile, but actually allows it. And God actually said this would happen. And so he allows it as a way to remain faithful to his own word. You see, God isn't just faithful to his nice promises. God is faithful to his warnings. And that's a part of God's faithfulness we don't like, but he's still faithful. <laughs> Not just to his promises, but even to his warnings. You see, Deuteronomy warns his people never to create military alliances. I'm just going to give you like a little bit of backdrop here. In Deuteronomy, he warns his people against creating military alliances. You could understand why. Uh, because... Uh, God wants his people, not as just some arbitrary rule, but God wants his people to trust him so much as protector that they don't need anything else. That he is all they need. He is sufficient as protector. And, and whenever they create military alliance, it's actually out of fear. They don't have enough. We don't have enough to defend ourselves. We actually need to create kind of like these alliances to kind of defend ourselves. Because God is not enough. The God who delivered them from the hand of Egypt is not enough. The God who, who raised up a judge like Gideon to, to lead a force of 300 against thousands 
and win is somehow not enough. The God who took down Jer- the walls of Jericho just by asking his people to walk around it and play trumpets, that God is somehow not enough. And we have to create like military alliances to try to bolster our power to actually feel in peace and secure because God is not enough. So he's actually asking his people to trust me, trust me, trust me as your protector. And don't create military alliances. And then after giving them that guardrail, in Leviticus, he talks about covenant blessings and curses, that 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 kind of guardrail is a part of the covenant that God is making with, with his people. It's an implication of the covenant. And then in Leviticus, it talks about blessings and curses. When, when, you, when we stay in covenant with one another, these are the blessings which the people of God will incur. But if there's a breach of covenant, these are, this is what you should be warned about. This is what will happen if there's a breach of covenant. And in Leviticus 26, he says, in breach of covenant, in like breaking these guardrails that are like establishing our union with one another, in breach of that, in Leviticus 26, he says, you will be defeated by your enemies... Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will be scattered among the nations. Just warning you. I'm just letting you know. If there's, if the, we, if there's some kind of breach of faithfulness here, this, this, these are some of the things that might come your way. I'm just letting you know. And then in 2 Kings 20, King Hezekiah, who was, who, who was actually, there's only a handful of good kings, and he was one of them. There's like three of them. And, and <laughs> there's more than that. But there's, there's not very many good kings. Hezekiah is one of them. And toward the end of his life, he, he, uh, agree, he starts getting into a military alliance with a foreign power. He, uh, the, 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 uh, the power of Assyria is, like, is a growing power threatening the people of God. And King Hezekiah invites another, another uh, world power uh, uh, by the name of, guess what, Babylon. And some, a delegation of leaders from Babylon to come to Jerusalem. And he shows in, in, in like currying favor with this, uh, this uh, delegation. He shows them all of the riches of Jerusalem, including like coming into the temple, seeing all the riches inside the temple as a way to say like, look, this could be, you know, we've got a lot going on. We've got a lot going on. I think we could be like a very meanwhile, me- meaningful partner for you. I was king. They didn't even have the law. They didn't even know what the, they were just like kind of living out these cultural practices. And they sent somebody over to the temple to like do some, do some accounting stuff and the, the high priest at the temple said, hey, just wanted to let you know, you should let the king know, I found this book, it seems pretty interesting. It says it's the law, it says a lot of important stuff, it seems like. And they take it to King Josiah, and, he, and he's like, we have to take this, not, and guess what, he doesn't take it to the high, he's like, we have to figure out what this is about. And he doesn't take it to the high priest, he takes it to a woman who was a prophet, her name was Holda, and they said, teach us everything. And she didn't go home, she preached. And, she, and she, she helped them understand the law. She helped them understand what exactly was going on. And she gave like a harsh prophetic word about like, if you don't figure this out, this is what, what's going to happen. And King Josiah goes forward in this like full-scale cultural like eradication of idolatry and evil and a restoration of the law. And you could say, now that's dealing with the past. And yet, there's still consequences from the past, even when it's dealt with in the present. <laughs> Even when there's like repentance and confession and like restoration, there's st- sometimes there's still consequences at like a cultural societal level for things that happened in the past. Maybe another time, sir. Per- sermon for another time, yeah? Listen, another time. <laughs> we got time, we got time. And just as the, so the, the, this is the reality, the Lord is being faithful 
to his own word. He's being faithful to himself, to his own standards, to his own covenant with himself. That he paved the way with the guardrails. He warned him and said, if, the, if, if, if we step out of covenant uh, uh, with one another, here's, well, here's what will happen. When they step out of that covenant, he tells them, here's what's going to happen. And then eventually it comes to the time for it to happen, and it happens. He's being faithful to himself. And he delivered the king and the people into exile. And the same treasures of the temple that were paraded around to the people of Babylon generations earlier as like, look at us. Look at how valuable we would be for you. Look at how valuable this partnership would be for you. Those same treasures are taken out of that same temple and embedded in the nation of Babylon. Along with God's people, stolen from the temple, stolen from the promised land and embedded all over Babylon. And now that all of God's people are conquered and Babylon and all of God's, it, it, by Babylon and all of God's treasures are captive in the temples of the gods of Babylon, this is surely a victory for the gods of Babylon over Yahweh. Surely Yahweh is subservient to the gods of Babylon. God has given up, God is shamed, or God is dead. And yet in verse 2, there's just three quick lines, but God delivered. The Lord delivered. He was not defeated by Babylon. He was using Babylon. <laughs> when Babylon was declaring victory, God was laughing. And the people of God, the presence of God, the practices of God, the knowledge of God was just embedded all over that nation. I was reading a story last week about a bank robbery that got a little interesting in Wisconsin where a four-time convicted bank robber out of California was released from prison. He had just spent, uh, he, was a, he, was a, he was a cellmate, he was friends with um, uh, Bernie Maddock, actually. And he was in, like, out in California. He got released from prison after four, being convicted of four bank robberies. And he, after he got released from prison, he wound up in a small town in Wisconsin. Uh, his name was Robert. And uh, as soon as he landed in the small town in Wisconsin, the FBI just notified a few of the banks in this small town and just said, hey, just wanted to let you know, <laughs> a four-time convicted bank robber who does not seem all that repentant, in our opinion, uh, just landed in your little town. Maybe you'd want to get some extra security measures. We would recommend these GPS trackers uh, uh, to place inside of duffel bags underneath your, your uh, uh, you know, teller desks. And we'll help with the cost, you know, if you, you, know, you want to upgrade yourself a little bit. And sure enough, not that long later, uh, uh, Robert, the serial bank robber, ended up trying to rob one of these banks. And uh, he walked in, armed robbery, at gunpoint. It said, you know, give me the money in the duffel bags, hand it over, don't push any red buttons or whatever. And the people load up the, uh, uh, the money inside of these uh, uh, duffel bags, but, in, but along with the money, two duffel bags, there's a GPS tracker inside of both bags. And he, Robert runs off, and he's got all the money in the world, and he's like, victory for me. I'm never going to get caught. This is the best thing ever. And the FBI is just kind of sitting in an office somewhere in another state and just thinking, that's where he is. There he is. And they could have pounced right away and arrested Robert and got another conviction, fifth, fifth bank robbery conviction. He would have gone away from a long time. But they said, hey, before we pounce, let's just sit and see what happens. Let's just see where he goes, what he does. And slowly over time, they watched Robert slowly unveil through these GPS trackers an entire criminal enterprise. 
that he was affiliated with. And they just kind of like, they would, they would watch the GPS trackers and then they would find like traffic cameras and stuff like that to try to identify where he was and try to get pictures of people he was meeting with. And then they would try to identify who those people were with facial recognition. And then they would try to get people around those people and talk about why, did, why were they meeting with Robert? He seems like an interesting guy to have coffee with on a Tuesday, you know? Uh, and they, they garnered this massive kind of sting operation of this entire criminal enterprise. See, when the bank robber declared victory... The FBI laughed, sat back and watched. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't just go grabbing a bunch of cash, he grabbed some GPS trackers. I went and got a flu shot this week. Anybody else get a flu shot? Everybody better get a flu shot. Uh, plug for the free clinic. The free clinic has flu shots, I think. If, uh, so, you know, if you, if you don't have one yet, go get one. I, sometimes I've had things against flu shots in the past because it seems like whenever I get one, that's the year I get the flu, uh, but, you know, to each their own. So I actually went and got one this last year. I paid someone to stick a needle in my body and give me a, a disease. That's what a flu shot is. If you didn't know that's what a flu shot is, that's what a flu shot is. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, that's right. I mean, to, okay, to be more honest, uh, my insurance allowed me to go and paid on my behalf to have someone stick a needle in my flesh and give me a disease. That's what a flu shot is. That's what flu shot's happening. You allow your body, this is any vaccine. It's not just a flu vaccine, it's any vaccine. You allow your body to be infected by something. You allow your body to be invaded by something that could wreak havoc. Something that's, that's dangerous, it can be dangerous. In order to awaken your immune system. In order to develop antibodies. A vaccine is, you're, 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 you're actually putting inside yourself, you're, vaccines don't cure you. Your body cures you. Vaccines are just awakening your body to its function, being able to cure you of those kinds of things. It's an instruction manual for your body. And when sickness runs around your body from a vaccine, declaring victory, wreaking havoc, the body laughs, and every antibody laughs because it knows it's already won. It's already in victory. God allows his body to be infected, taken over, conquered sometimes, in order to awaken an immune system, to stir up strong antibodies like Daniel, to awaken his people, and for a lot of other reasons. God is looking more and more defeated in America in 2019. Is he not? Can we have have a conversation about this? According to Pew Research, Christian identification, just people like identifying themselves as Christian, has dropped 12% over the last five years. And the people who would refer to themselves as either agnostic or atheist or just not really religiously affiliated with anything, this is what sometimes is called the nuns, that uh, pocket of people has risen by uh, uh, 10% in that same span of time. Less than 20% of millennials attend a weekly religious service of any kind. So just like a group of people getting together who are, are uh, uh, tr- trying, to follow, tr- trying to be Christian or follow Jesus in any way, uh, uh, that would be called like a religious service. Less than 20% of millennials attend one of those on a weekly basis. Less than 15% of Generation Z and iGen combined 
uh, attend a weekly service regularly. It just gets worse the younger you get, actually. The higher you go, the more percentage there is. The younger you get, the worse it is. Over 73% of congregations in America are in decline. 73% are in decline. 21% of the congregations in America are in what they call steep decline to death, which means they're projecting that they'll close their doors in five years. 21%. One in five. Over 61% of congregations reported less than four new conversions in the year 2018. Less than four people who surrendered their life to Jesus in a calendar year. Over 61% of congregations. It's looking more and more and more like Judah has been conquered. Like the bank has been robbed. Like the sickness is taking over the body. But God is not dead. And God is not conquered. And God is not shamed. He's just fine. I think God laughs as He releases the treasures of the temple everywhere in the nation. As He takes His presence embodied in those temple treasures and His priesthood of all believers and sees them spread and embedded everywhere in exile to be embedded in the world. And when God looked defeated, how did the tides turn? When God looked defeated, when He looked shamed, when He looked dead, how did the tides turn? How, what was the moment? that, that what, what was it that actually turned that mechanism toward destru- from destruction toward a redemptive hope, a redemptive future. His redemptive movement turned on a handful of teenage exiles who were chosen for service and carried by favor. Daniel and his friends would have been 14 to 16 years old. 14 to 16 years old. And they are the hinge on which this trajectory toward destruction turns on a trajectory toward redemption. Guys, Midway is happening in you know, this is, this is like middle schoolers and high schoolers. They're the hope of the nation. Yes. <laughs> They're the hope of the nation. They're the hope of the nation. And, and people who would have been seen as like weak or futile or in training or nothing or whatever. They're actually the hinge on which this redemptive path turns. They're thrown immediately into Babylon University. They undergo a massive amount of willful cultural adaptation and assimilation. They become third culture kids. It's like they know who they are and they're in a place where they have to, they have to actually completely submit to this system which is forcing them into assimilation into something different. And they learn the language and they learn the literature. And when they learn the literature, that means they're learning history and history is subjective, so they're learning the Babylonians' interpretation of history. They're learning philosophy, a Babylonian view of philosophy. They're learning from Babylonian religious texts. They would be learning about a, a, a Babylonian's view and perspective of the arts. They even had to change their names. 
And yet in the midst of all that, which, which can actually only be described in its, in its own implementation as evil, and the attempt to eradicate an expression of a, a cultural expression which is actually going to exist into eternity and God will not let die. Actually what happens is God, it says this crazy line toward the end of the text that God gave them knowledge and understanding. Now what's happening to them is morally uh, reprehensible. But God in the midst of it is giving them knowledge and understanding and actually elevating their leadership, their platform, to the point that they're standing in front of the king with people who are ma- magicians, people who are other like high-level Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar looks and says, these guys are ten times better than all of you. They out-Babylonianed the Babylonians. And they were really living out this Jeremiah mandate, I think, from Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah is like prophetically speaking to the people of God in exile. And he says this language. He says, To those I have carried into exile in Babylon, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Increase in number there in exile. Do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Seek the peace and prosperity of your own oppressors and pray to the Lord for it, for the city, for those people. Under exile, build houses, settle down, build houses, have a garden. Eat your own food out of your garden. Marry, have kids. Because some of the logic of, of people in exile would be like, I don't want to grow a family in this. I don't want to have kids into this. I don't want to introduce more people into this. No. And he's saying, no, settle down. Build a house. Have a future. Have a family. Increase in number. Increase in number. And seek the peace and prosperity of the city. You see, God turns cultural exile toward his purposes by spreading his temple treasures and his people, his presence among the nations and embedding them in the nations with the command to seek the peace of our own oppressors. And this would be the way that God would be at work among the nations. This is, this is how he kind of communicates through Jeremiah to his people in Babylon who are asking these questions. What, how, what do we do? How, what, are, what are we supposed to do? I had a meeting this last week with Pastor James, and I'm sure almost none of you know Pastor James. It's a real, he's, a, he's an amazing person. Hopefully uh, uh, some of you can interact with him, maybe at the Microchurch Showcase. But Pastor James is a, is a, a, a Korean pastor. Life, you know, he's in his, I think he's in his 50s, life uh, uh, missionary pastor. And he spent, before landing here, he's been in Tampa for a, a handful of years, but before coming here, he spent 15 years as a pastor of the underground church in China as a Korean missionary. Um, and I was sitting with him last week and we had a meeting about something else and we were just talking to each other. It was about totally different things. And then at the end of the meeting, as he does, every time I'm talking to Pastor James, he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, how can I be praying for you, brother, before we kind of end this meeting? And, uh, it, it, and, you know, depends on the day how you can be praying for me. And on that day, he, he, he caught me on a day when I had been on and off the phone with mall management three or four times and they were sucking my soul out of my body. And I was, and so I told him, I said, I said, man, 
uh, you could just be praying for my perseverance under, uh, and endurance under so much pressure from the mall around our facilities and the future of our facilities. Um, it, it's just really eating away at me. And, he, and again, he had his hand on my shoulder and he just looked at me with like real genuine empathy. And he just goes, oh my goodness, I know, I know. When I was in China for 15 years, we had to find a different place to meet every single Sunday. I know what that's like. And I said, can I take back my thing and say a different thing? <laughs> I want to say a different thing now. This is... <laughs> he was like, wherever we met before, for 15 years, we had to find a different place every single Sunday. Because wherever we met before, there'd be a, it, it would be unsafe to ever return. And we got to communicate that to everybody and the communication system's really, it's really difficult and we got to tell everybody where we're going to be that next Sunday. And I know, I know. <laughs> oh. You see, in a place in China, in a place where God died 90 years ago, God was conquered 90 years ago. God was shamed 90 years ago. He's just been laughing. And guys, over the last 80, 90 years, the, the underground church movement in China is the biggest movemental explosion of the church in history. And last month, I mean, there were two or three different articles online that were showing like big old mega churches in China being tore down. Do you see some of this? And, all, and it's like, even, I'm, you know, I'm studying this text and I'm like seeing some of it. And it's like, it's like sad, it's terrible. It's like you, you want, you, it's like, there's no point of you saying like, oh, so good, they tore down a building and they're persecuting people. But at the same time, what the government is trying to accomplish, every time they knock down a building, they do the exact opposite. And, I, I, you know, this might be a little too saucy. We can turn the camera off or something. But I actually think if China actually wanted to accomplish what they want to accomplish, they would just let these people build churches. Go ahead. We know that. We know that life. Europe knows that life. But actually, every single time one of these big old buildings gets knocked down, all that's happening is the jewel, the precious jewels of the temple and the presence of God is actually just being scattered everywhere to actually live as exiles, faithful exiles among the nations and just exploding. We have a sister movement in Paris led by this amazing servant leader, Samir, and I've, I've, I've talked to him twice, and if you, you talk to him, you, you know, he's so humble, but if you know anything going on in his life, I'm just kind of like, it's, I can barely look at you, the light, you know, it's like he's, he's just this amazing leader. And I saw, I saw Stacy in the Philippines over the summer, and I was just asking Stacy how she's been doing when we were in the Philippines, and she had just come to the Philippines from recently, you know, sometime recently being with Samir and his community in Paris. Uh, uh, and her just describing what was going on in Paris, she said, she said, you know, I was basically like in a living room with Samir and his team, and it's basically just this community from like dozens of different nations, and people who are like refugees and immigrants from all, all, all around the place, and they're, and they're literally just sitting and having prayer and worship for hours, and they're just hungry for God, hungry for his presence, hungry for his word, and just living like radically faithful lives in the world. And she was almost like, yeah, I mean, I've been busy and I've been really tired, but you, I see people like that and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I could do this forever. I could do this forever because of communities like that. Guys, Paris, France, Europe, 
in a place where God died 30 years ago, 40 years ago. God was conquered 30, 40 years ago. He, he, where, where God was conquered by progressive intellect and where God has been shamed by vacant church buildings. He's just been laughing and embedding His presence all over the nation through His temple treasures everywhere. Who needs those notes? I actually do. I actually do need those notes. Things would get weird if I didn't have these notes. Things would get weird. It's it's for our own good. Guys, is the American church dying? You better believe it. It's going to be a hard conversation. Can Can we do this together? Is the American church dying? Yes. Here we go. Is the American enterprise of the church dying? Yes. And we've got to get to a place, I'm telling you, exiles, missionaries, we've got to get to a place where we're down for the funeral. And we see actually what God is doing in the midst of it. We see that like the death of the classic enterprise of the American church and the way that we've understand it, stood it and the way that it's been pursued that its slow decline is, is at, like God is actually delivering that. God isn't gone. He's not, he's not like the culture isn't winning or something like that. The, 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 all these like vacant church buildings and closing congregations, something that isn't like God being conquered, God being shamed, the name of God being like dragged through the mud or something like that. God is here. He's at work. And when the American church dies, the, the church of Christ Jesus is going to be just fine. It is just fine. And the temple treasures, the goods of the temple, the presence of God is actually just being scattered among the nations, scattered among the cities, scattered among neighborhoods, scattered among work buildings through you, through his people. Guys, every downtown building needs, needs a, a jewel from the temple. Every single neighborhood in Tampa, in Tampa needs a jewel, needs you. God is not dead. God is not conquered. God is not shamed. To the contrary, he laughs. And his quiet sovereignty foreknew that this was coming, that it would happen, and he's embedding us as his priesthood of all believers among the nations. And praise God for it. When our enemies declare victory, God laughs. If the worship team would come up, I just want to end on this last little line that I think... If you're kind of stirred, if you're kind of like, I think I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I see this new, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to spend my life playing hospice for a dying version of the church. I want to spend my life being a doula for what God is birthing into the world. That's what I want to do. How do I do it? How do I do it? I actually think it all turns on these three words, but Daniel resolved. You see that God actually turns a trajectory toward destruction into actually redemptive movement on four teenagers, but the, but the moment that he starts doing it is when Daniel says, I resolve, I draw the line, I draw the line. I mean, the, the history of God's people in the world is turning on a 14-year-old kid saying, I resolve. That's powerful. This is the moment in which the movement of this passage, the movement of this story, the history of God's work through his people turns.
And he resolved what? He resolved not to defile himself. And actually, we're not entirely sure uh, uh, why he resolved, because it's not clear why he would be uh, uh, defiling himself. Um, So far, they've determined that learning the language and the literature was not in any way defilement. Uh, They've decided that changing their names was not in any way defilement, that settling down and having a family and benefiting the city and praying for the city was not defilement. And you might think, hey, I think, I think you know, there, there might be some holiness issues here. Um, and there could be, there could be uh, around like Leviticus ceremonial law and food and was it sacrificed to autos and so I just think like that gets a little complicated because uh, uh, if, if they're saying no to the food because it was sacrificed to, the, to idols, there's actually, they would have no certainty that the vegetables weren't either. And they're still, if that, if that was the reason, then they wouldn't want to eat or drink anything. And they might, and if you think, well, the reason why it would defile them is because it makes them in allegiance to the king, you know, showing that they're receiving his food and wine. Well, again, same thing. If that was the reason they didn't want to do it, then they, that same thing is accomplished with the vegetables. They're still eating stuff provided to them. It's still like allegiance and loyalty and all that kind of stuff. So that can't be it either. And if they're like, oh, it's like a holiness issue, like they're not supposed to eat the certain meats that's being served to them, well, why aren't they drinking the wine? There's literally no Levitical like uh, ceremonial structure around drinking the wine. So that, it's actually a little bit hard to see which, which one of those reasons they would be taking. I actually don't think it's any of them. I think what's interesting is we, we, I don't think there is a reason to believe that the food itself would have defiled them. I don't think they're saying, I resolve not to eat or drink this because it in itself, the food and the drink in itself is going to defile me in some kind of ceremonial holy way. I think what's happening is that there's so much assimilation pressure on them to, to completely turn themselves over to Babylon, and at some time they have to say, I draw the line here. I draw the line here. I belong to God, and I will express my own agency and show, remember to myself that I belong to Him. And I choose arbitrarily here, food and drink. This will be my reminder to myself, to my friends, that I belong to God, not to Babylon. Everything and guys, listen. The the need when you're like when you're like like culturally being pushed so hard to be to completely lose yourself, uh, uh, and and just feeling the need to draw the line somewhere. I, I mean, j- just generally, that's like a, a kind of a, in this cultural climate, it's a harder thing for white people to understand. But people of color in the room, they already get this. They're good. They're like they're like yes. You, I, I got to speak like you. I got to dress like you. I got to act like you. I got to dance like you. I got to listen to the same music. I got to draw the line somewhere. I got to. I got to lay down the line somewhere. Like I'm gonna be me. Like, like, like. I got to remember me. I got to remember who I am. I'm gonna remember who I am. I mean, I've had I've had uh, uh, friends in my life who, uh, uh, you know, they they've actually become very culture. They've become third culture kids. They've become very culture, and that's actually to their advantage. They're amazing missionaries. They're some of the best missionaries I've ever known. And yet they'll continue to say thank you a certain way forever. They continue to say hello or greet in a certain way forever. They'll, they'll, at every wedding, they're never going to dance like anybody else. Like on purpose. I'm not going to. I'm going to draw the line. And guys, in the same way that that's happening, this is like the people of God. This is Daniel saying like, my identity, not just as a Jew, not just as a Jew my identity as one who belongs to God is actually being squelched out of me entirely. And, and, and 
I actually see that God is leading me, actually, uh, uh, to become all things to all people to a degree. If you remember the language of Paul, uh, that actually there's some of these things that aren't going to defile me, and they're actually to my advantage if I, if I learn some of these things and embrace some of these ways. But at some point, I have to draw the line. I have to resolve to belong to Jesus in this way. To, at the, for the very least, to remember. And guys, this isn't, this isn't 1 Peter. 1 Peter was like calling to holiness and calling to interactions because the city watches you and because you're, you're giving a testimony and a witness somehow. There's no testimony in this language. There's no witness in this language. There's no like, like you, you set yourself apart for the sake of others. This is private. This is Daniel saying to himself, I don't care who's watching me. I do that. This is private distinction. I must remember who, whom, I am, whom I belong to. I must remember who I am. I must remember the God who delivers from Egypt as I sit in Babylon. I must remember. And this will be the way that I remember. And if I don't remember, if I give in to everything and I don't remember, that is my defilement. The moment that, that Babylon actually completely rips away from me, my, my distinct identity as one who belongs to God, I have been defiled. And I must resolve somewhere. It's a visceral need to draw the line. It's a private distinction. And his resolve at 14, at the age of 14, not to eat food and wine, is what made it possible for him, to for him and his friends to resolve at the age of 30 not to kneel to Nebuchadnezzar and to stay standing in the face of a fiery furnace. And his resolve at the age of 14 to food and drink is what made it possible for him to resolve at the age of 80 to keep praying in the face of King Cyrus and looking at death by the den of lions. Because he was able to resolve with something small and be faithful with something small, he was prepared to have resolve as an exile into the future. The question this morning that I think we're being invited into is where is Jesus inviting you to resolve to belong to him right now in this season? Where is Jesus inviting you to draw the line and say, on this matter, I belong to you. I will not budge on this. I'm telling you, over the last two or three years, I, I have not interacted with more, and even in this community, and and. I'm one of them too. I'm the worst offender. I'm the chief of sinners on this matter. But I, I've never met so many people who do not know how to take a Sabbath and do not rest and don't stop for 24 hours. Just stop for 24 hours. And I'm telling you, there are some of you in this room who today need to resolve to cut out 24 hours of your life to give entirely to King Jesus. Not to Netflix, not to football but to say, to God I belong. And Babylon is demanding I don't do this. Because it is. Babylon is demanding that you give every single waking second of your life to being productive and an efficient human being. And you say, on this matter I draw the line. Because I do not belong to Babylon, I belong to Christ Jesus. And this is his day. This is it. Some of you in, in you know, some of you in college, I know, are making decisions about whether or not to go to parties, whether or not to like be around people who drink, or whether or not like how do I do this or whatever. And and I, again, this is like a matter of conviction. For some of you, it's like 
in this way, I actually feel like I'm an equipped missionary and I can engage people in these kinds of settings. And some of you, as a matter of conviction, need to actually lay down, I resolve on this matter. I resolve on this matter. That I'm, I'm not actually going to be in those kinds of settings. I just can't. I just can't. Some of you feel a little bit loose with uh, language. <laughs> We're talking about it all this morning. Some of you feel a little bit loose with language and that kind of stuff. You feel like you can just say whatever you want to say or whatever. Uh, and I just think, again, those of you who feel that way, you better do that from a matter of conviction that, you, that actually God has given you some kind of divine permission and some kind of missionary mandate to be able to do that for some reason to the glory of God. But those of you who actually, there, there's some of you in this room who actually are a little bit loose with language, and I think actually this morning God might be inviting you to draw the line and to resolve on this matter. I will not be owned by Babylon. I belong to God on this matter with the use of my tongue. There's a whole lot more this morning, guys. I just think it's, it's, it's realizing we're in exile, and Babylon is, guys, we're in Babylon University too. God, like the, this, the powers and principalities right now are, are making demands on our lives and pressurizing us. And at some point, every single one of us has to draw the line and to resolve to belong to Christ Jesus. And Daniel remained faithful in this leadership and in this position and in exile, in this complicated space of exile for 65 years. This is the last line, the very last line of this text. It says, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Guys, that's 65 years. And you know who King Cyrus is? He's the king of the Persians. You know what that means? Babylon has fallen. Babylon broke. And the Persians came in. So in the first line of the text, you see big, great, strong Babylon and little, weak Daniel. And in the last line of the text, you see big, strong Daniel and Babylon's gone. Babylon's long gone. You see, God will carry you to outlast your greatest threats. He's going to carry you to outlast your greatest threats. And he's inviting you this morning to resolve. Resolve to be his. Resolve to belong to him. As we come to the table this morning, let's resolve. Let's resolve as a community to belong to him. Because guys, we've been called to, to, to be incarnational people, to be embedded missionaries, to become all things to all people. And I'm telling you guys, that's, that's a risky place to be because I've seen too many people go into that place under the right motives, but then to be discipled by the world. And this morning, the invitation is to go into those places. Keep going. Keep at it. Keep going. Keep embedding yourself among those places, but assert to whom you belong. Set in your heart to whom you belong. Resolve on something, something this morning. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And when you eat it, you eat it in memory of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in memory of me. So this morning, underground, come as a community, as a family, come and remember to whom you belong. Come and remember to whom you belong. And come and say yes to that way that he's nudging you to resolve today, to draw the line today and receive from him the power to be faithful to it. When you're ready, the element.